Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are actually concluding a sermon series that we've been in throughout the fall. Uh, We are going to be in the last few verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've seen uh, in this letter Paul uh, work to remind his friends in Galatia uh, about the central importance in their lives of the gospel of God's grace. We've seen him have some pointed words for teachers who came in after him. Uh, trying to argue that it was necessary for these Galatian Christians not only to believe in Jesus, but also to keep the Old Testament law completely in order then to finally qualify as righteous in God's sight. And Paul has been dealing with that uh, now for six chapters. And I love these last few verses. You know, we think uh, largely because of these verses that Paul did most of his writing, most of the letters that we have of Paul's, Uh, that he actually dictated them to a secretary who wrote them down. And so here at the end of Galatians, in, in verse 11, it picks up, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. So it's like Paul is now getting to the conclusion, he's getting to what it's all been leading up to, and he says, now give me the pen. And I wonder, I do wonder how large, his, I wonder how bad his handwriting was uh, that he felt he needed to apologize for it up front. Um, but this is clearly Paul now coming to a conclusion uh, from his heart uh, to these friends that he loves in Galatia. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. Well, this week, as Kyle and Libby alluded to in their prayers, uh, we are headed towards Thanksgiving, right? We will gather uh, this week, hopefully, with friends, with family, maybe with roommates, uh, and we will celebrate uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. There may not uh, be another holiday in American life that's more uh, full of sentimental traditions, Right? We all know the food in particular that we're most looking forward uh, to getting our hands on on Thanksgiving. 
We know uh, the nap in front of a bad Detroit Lions football game that awaits us. We know the parade that starts that morning. And even though I don't even like parades, I will sit down and watch it uh, at some point. And it's interesting how all of these traditions attach themselves to Thanksgiving. There's a fascinating little book by Robert McKenzie called The First Thanksgiving where he seeks to sort out uh, what's real, what's true to the history of Thanksgiving and that first Thanksgiving and what is later additions. He writes this, Typically only a portion of popular opinion on the past is factual, but most is based on ideas that somebody at some point made up. And he includes a lot of the, the popular ideas that we have about Thanksgiving that are, in a word, made up. Uh, he tells us, I was shocked to learn that the buckles on the pilgrim's hat, right, that we grew up making from the time we were in second or third grade, uh, actually didn't come along till 30 or 40 years later. Uh, it would have been as strange to those first pilgrims as an iPhone would have been to somebody in the 1970s. Much of our uh, notions about what the first Thanksgiving was like actually comes from a later author, Jane Austen. Jane G. Austen, not to be confused with the other one. Uh, this Jane Austen lived in America in the mid-1800s. And so she was 200 years removed from the first Thanksgiving. She was as far, we're, we're closer to her than she was to the first Thanksgiving. And she's the one who fills in the story about a lot of the feasts and the Indians and Squanto and all, all of that comes mostly from her novel, Standish on Standish. And then the details were then reprinted in a 19, an 1897 edition of Ladies Home Journal. And this is where we get so much of our popular ideas. McKenzie goes on to tell us that there may not have even been turkey. In fact, there likely wasn't turkey at the first Thanksgiving. He says, in reality, that first meal was likely built around duck, geese, and other waterfowl. Pheasants and quail, maybe, perhaps a turkey. All of these were much more plentiful and easier to come by. Likely also deer and clam and mussels would have been at the center of the first Thanksgiving feast. And so I learned all of this, and I have to be honest with you, I, I don't care. I... <laughs> I don't, I don't care at all. Uh, I, I like mussels. I will, I will order mussels if I'm at a restaurant. But if I come to your house at Thanksgiving, I don't want to see a plate full of bivalves brought out in the center of the table. I don't want to see venison, no matter how good it might be. I don't even particularly want clams. I want turkey. That's right. Turkey. Uh, anything that counts is a Thanksgiving meal doesn't count unless it's centered around turkey. I can already uh, think about how I want to build my plate <laughs> around that turkey. A meal not built around turkey doesn't qualify uh, as a Thanksgiving meal. And Paul is arguing something somewhat similar. Uh, he is saying in these final verses that nothing deserves the name Christianity that is not built around Christ. Nothing without Christ at its center is deserving of the name of Christianity. No uh, other thing can come to the center of our lives and still be considered a life that is genuinely Christian. The way that Paul puts it here in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the ancient idea of boasting uh, is one that's somewhat foreign to us. When we think of boasting, we think largely of bragging, right? It's what you brag about, and that's some, some piece of the idea. Commentator John Stott uh, gets at the ancient Greek and Roman notion of boasting. When he says of this Greek word, he says it means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, rejoice in, revel in, and live for. The object of our boast or our glory fills our horizons, it engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. And Paul says that ever since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, uh, came to so fill his vision for what life was. It came to so be at the center of who he understood himself to be, how he understood his calling in the world, how he understood the very existence of the world itself, that he could say, the only thing I boast in is Jesus and his cross. Remember, there were others in Galatia who were boasting in their own ability to keep the law. There were some who boasted in their own intelligence, in their own moral ability, in their own Jewish heritage, in their own circumcision. And Paul says, no, no, the only thing worth boasting in, the only thing worth ordering your life around, is the person of Jesus. And Paul fleshes this out because he shows us in the final verses the fruit of this kind of life built on Jesus, centered on Christ and His cross. All throughout the letter, he's talked to the Galatians about freedom. That uh, the result of the gospel is a life set free. Set free from guilt, set free from shame, set free from fear. And he ends his letter with, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your spirit, brothers. Right, It enabled him to live this life marked by courage and conviction, even in the face of suffering. That's what it means when he says, In my body I bear the marks of Jesus. That means that like Jesus suffered, he suffered. He suffered stoning and shipwreck and beatings and all sorts of horrible things. He suffered uh, opposition in Galatia. He suffered his friends turning their back on him. And yet he can still say, don't trouble me anymore. I've said my peace. And now peace, peace be with you. Peace through Jesus Christ. A life centered on Jesus sets us free. To live a life of courage and faith and hope and conviction and love. Paul also has in his crosshairs here uh, the things that he says his opponents were building their life around. Right? He talks about, he's going to highlight for us two things that often vie to be the center of our lives that cannot be. He identifies those two things as fear and pride. It says his opponents had centered their lives and their they were motivated not by Christ, but by fear on the one hand and by pride on the other. If I honestly look back at most of the bad decisions that I've made over the course of my life, usually they've been motivated either by fear or pride. Right? Either from a right decision I didn't make because I was afraid, afraid of what other people would think, afraid of what might happen, afraid of what people would think of me. Or by pride, vanity, right? Doing this to climb some ladder that I'm convinced matters in the moment 
before I fall flat on my face. It's basic to human nature that we are motivated in our sin by fear and by pride. Let's look first uh, at how his opponents, uh, these people who urged the Galatians to be circumcised, how they're motivated by fear. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Only in order that they may not be persecuted. A history, uh, people who study the first century will sometimes refer to this movement in the church that came against Paul and his gospel. They'll call them the Judaizers. Right, people who wanted to lure the Christians back into a form of Judaism. It seems that their logic wasn't to convince people to abandon Christ, but to make sure that in addition to Christ, they also kept the rest of the Jewish moral law. Uh, in essence, that they could continue on in their life in the synagogue and their life in the Jewish community, adding Christ to it, but still remaining kosher, still getting circumcised, still keeping all of those things in place. And Paul here says that their motive in doing that, their primary motive was fear. Fear of persecution. You know, we often think, when you think about early Christian persecution, we often think of it coming from the hands of the Romans, uh, from the Roman Empire. And indeed, uh, it did come from the Romans uh, as the centuries went on. But first century persecution in the early church was largely from the leaders of the Jews. They were given the right uh, by the Roman authorities over them to police their own religious boundaries. And it was the rulers within Judaism that were the most active in persecuting, shunning, uh, kicking Christians out of their community, making them suffer economic deprivation by refusing to do business with them, at times, even killing them. The first martyr, Stephen, that we see in the book of Acts, was killed not by the Romans, uh, but by the Jewish religious authorities. And so the fear that these Judaizing Christians felt was real, right? This wasn't something that they made up. It wasn't a boogeyman in their mind that they just couldn't, couldn't deal with. This was a real thing. This was something that you might really and justifiably be afraid of. And so they say uh, to these Christians, look, you've decided that Jesus is the Messiah. Please just get circumcised. Get circumcised, keep the law, don't make a hard break with our culture, with our synagogues, with our way of life. Don't make it a hard break, but just kind of bring Jesus in as one element among many of your life. And Paul uh, his, he's now spent uh, six chapters doing, calls them out on it. In Paul's perspective, uh, it's impossible, it's utterly impossible uh, to bring Christianity, to bring Jesus in as an add-on to your life. Uh, that it's impossible to bring him into your life while retaining the, the set marks of your culture, of your worldview, of your way of life. And the Christians uh, were in a difficult place in the first and second centuries. These early Christians were in a difficult place. Because the Jewish community, where most of the early converts came from, viewed them as essentially pagan. Right? To believe that a man was actually God in the flesh, 
to believe that he was the Messiah, to believe that he was actually God's own son, to then, uh, so they believed they were essentially polytheists, they were pagans. Uh, then they believed that they had a lax uh, ethical code, right? All these things that they had been doing for generations, the Christians were saying they were free from. So on the one hand, they were viewed as too lax and too pagan. But the Romans over time are going to come to this, determine the, the opposite about them. Right, that they're too monotheistic. They don't worship the other gods. They refuse to worship the emperor. They refuse to, uh, to pay their, their sacrifices in the temple. They have an overly constricted moral life. Right, whereas the Jews looked at the Christians and said they were too lax, the Romans are going to look at the Christians and say, what are you so worried about? In a much more permissive society, they'd say that Christians were uptight. And so the Christians found themselves hated on what we would say is the right and the left. Right, neither, neither quite at home in the midst of uh, Roman philosophy, Roman paganism, Roman licentiousness, nor quite at home uh, in Judaism, the world that most of them had left. True Christianity uh, always creates its own culture, uh, its own way of life, its own way of following life, uh, following our, our Savior in life that doesn't quit, quite fit in in this world. We see it, uh, if you look and you read um, what's going on in the, in the church around the world, we see this really clearly in other cultures. We see it uh, in the church in the predominantly Muslim world. That when someone in one of these cultures converts to Christianity, they have a choice to make. Do they continue uh, to live within their culture, much of which in their village would be utterly centered around the mosque? Do they continue to live within that culture, within that community, keep their faith private? Or do they identify with Christ, join his church, and perhaps risk their very lives? We see it uh, in the Hindu world, right? If you talk to one of our uh, missionaries in India, Paul Devakmar, he'll tell you that one of the main difficulties they have in planting churches in India is convincing people that, it's not okay, that, it, that what the gospel offers is not just adding Jesus to a pantheon of other gods. right? It's not just saying, I'm, I still worship this God and this God and this God and this God and also Jesus now takes a spot on the shelf. But to actually be baptized and to publicly identify as, no, no, not those gods. I now follow this God. I now follow Jesus. It seems uh, as, as difficult as these decisions uh, are for these new converts. Many of them, thousands of them, uh, make them joyfully and obediently because they're convinced that Christ is their life, that Christ is the center of their life and everything else has to fade away. It's easy for us to see it when we look into other cultures. And yet, I think it is so hard for us to see it when we look at our own world. To believe that to follow Jesus really does mean to break with some of what our culture tells us is normative. Right? That to be a Christian in, in the U.S. would also mean that you never feel quite at home. That you never feel quite at home in the crass consumerism of our age. Or in an age that tells you that uh, your fulfillment in life is ultimately about your self-expression and your self-actualization. There's parts about our lives that will feel strange. Right in a, in a polarized political environment that tells us that you have to be either one thing or the other. There are elements of following Jesus that will make you feel a stranger in a, in a, 
in a uh, bifurcated partisan world. Christianity calls us to not make decisions out of fear, to not make decisions about what will everybody else think about this life that I feel called to lead, and to be willing to not uh, allow our wor- the world around us to shape our understanding of Jesus, but rather to let our understanding of Jesus shape everything about the way that we view the world, the way we view our bodies, the way we view our neighbors, the way we view our jobs, the way we view our city, to let Jesus shape it. C.S. Lewis uh, once said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son, not only because I see Him, but because by Him, I see everything else illuminated. I come to understand my spiritual life and my political life and my economic life and my social life, my physical life, my relational life in light of Jesus who shines his light on these things. Discipleship to Jesus always involves a type of leaving. You know, this I think oftentimes as Western Christians, we don't know what to make of some of these verses in the Gospels. Places where Jesus says things like, if anyone would follow me and be my disciple, he has to hate his father and his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And we go, but focus on the family told me that, that to follow Jesus meant that I, that I loved my mom and my dad and my brothers and my sisters. And in a, in a culture like ours, yes, in a way it does mean that, right? That we honor our father and mother, that we love our nearest neighbors, our family. But in Jesus' setting, it meant that you'd be willing to forsake your networks of belonging, to believe that, that what he offers is better. When Jesus says things like, unless someone picks up his cross and follows me, he can't be my disciple. We think, what does that mean? Right? What does that even mean in a culture where we put the Jesus fish on our business cards so that maybe uh, the people we're doing business with think they can trust us a little more? Right, in a culture where to, to identify with Jesus meant death. It's hard for us to know what it means to truly and really find our lives in Christ as his apprentices, his disciples. And so Paul says that his opponents were, were making their decisions, were centering their life on fear. But it actually gets a little worse than that. He, sa- he goes on to say in verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Right, this is picking up on something he says in the book of Acts where he tells these Judaizing Christians that they're trying to lay on the back of new converts to Jesus what he calls a burden that neither they nor their forefathers have been able to bear. He said, look, you're trying to saddle them with some requirements that you know you don't keep and you know that your people before you didn't keep. Why, Why are you trying to saddle them with this? And then he tells us why. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Get what he's saying. He's saying they are trying to boast. They're trying to brag. They're trying to revel in, brag about, tell all their friends about the fact that they got you to be circumcised. This this is a weird thing to brag about. Right? Look at, look at how many foreskins we got. Uh, because we convinced all of these Greek converts to get circumcised. Look at what that means about us. Look about what it means about how right we are, how persuasive we are, how, how good we are. Again, 
an admittedly strange thing to brag about. <laughs> I got to keep going, though. It's, it's, you know. uh, so what Paul said, doesn't this speak to the perversity and the innate bent towards self-righteousness in the human heart that we can even make faith an occasion for pride? That we can even make a faith that's rooted in a confession of sin, right? An admittance that we need a Savior, a trusting in Jesus as Savior. That we can even make that kind of faith, a faith that starts in humility, an occasion for bragging and puffing ourselves up about how right we are and how, how wrong others are. Right? Though we may not, uh, I don't think, run around bragging about how we con convinced other people to get circumcised. <laughs> how common is it uh, in our churches to run around bragging about the fact that, hey, I got, you know what? I got four Baptists to become Presbyterian today. Right? I convinced them of the validity of our theology. Or I convinced a bunch of Presbyterians to become Pentecostal. Good luck. I convinced, uh, or I convinced a bunch of Protestants to become Catholic or a bunch of Catholics to become Protestant. Right? We love to draw lines around which we are convinced we're right and others are wrong. And then to make ourselves feel better when we're able to persuade others to join our particular camp. To join the circumcision camp over and against the non-circumcision camp. We turn even our faith into an opportunity uh, to boast, to compete, to argue. And what Paul said, I mean, listen, Paul has just given us six solid chapters of good, deep, and rich theology. Right? He's given us six chapters essentially on why you ought not give in to those who say you ought to be circumcised. But what he also says is that when your life is centered on Christ, the differences begin to matter less and less, right? When your focus is on the one who's become the center of our life, then the differences cease to predominate. He's going to go on to say, and we're going to get to this in a minute, he's going to go on to say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And you go, well, Paul, if neither one counts for anything, what have you been doing for these six chapters where you've been telling us not to get circumcised. He says, what counts? New creation. Right? The new life that Jesus is bringing relativizes our differences. It puts Christ at the center of the church's common life so that what we share becomes far more important than our petty divisions and that we can rejoice in unity in the truth. You know, this, I think, is a particularly pressing temptation, uh, this, this temptation to boast in our factions, to boast in our particular brand of Christianity, uh, becomes, far, it becomes a really pressing temptation when you're planting a new church, right? When you're a church plant like this one, right, we're, we're only at this for five years, right? It's easy to, to think that a part of the way you justify your own existence as a church is by putting down the other churches in your neighborhood, right? The other churches that other people might be going to in your community. So you begin to say things like, well, yeah, yeah, those people are fine. But if you really take the gospel seriously, you'd come to our church. Oh, yeah, 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 those churches, those churches are fine. But if you really took uh, 
whatever your particular passion of ministry is, ministry among the poor, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of evangelism, if you took those things seriously, well, then you would leave that church and you would come to join to our church. If you took your discipleship seriously, you'd leave that church and come to this church. It's an incredibly tempting thing uh, when you're trying to plant a church, something I know something about. And yet, uh, Paul would tell us that the only fitting reason, there are good reasons to plant new churches. right? Paul spent most of his life planting new churches. The, the scars that he bore in his own body were there because he was a missionary out planting new churches. But the motivation for planting new churches is the glory of God, right? that he would be more worshipped by more people, and the good of our neighbors. Right, the good, that we, we do believe we'll keep planting churches. Not because we believe that the Episcopalians aren't doing a good enough job or the Baptists aren't doing a good enough job or whatever. But because we believe that new churches are the best way to reach new people. We've, uh, all the research points to that new churches more effectively enfold people who don't have a church than churches that have been in existence for a very long time and are so set in their ways and their communities become calcified. Right? The way that we hope to lean against that and not become inward-facing ourselves is to continue to regenerate, to continue to multiply, not so we can gain more market share, build up a better brand, but so that more people will join the family of God and come to find their life where we found ours centered on Christ and His cross. And so what happens when Christ is at the center of our life? Both our personal life uh, in our common life together. Well, Paul tells us in these verses uh, that when Christ is at the center of your life, the events of Christ's life become the most important events of your life. He tells us uh, that when your life is centered on Christ, as he said earlier, and remember uh, chapter 3, verse 20, where he tells us, Paul says, I, it is no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right, to, be, to be joined to Christ by faith means that you die with Him in His death and you come to new life with Him in His resurrection. That's what union with Christ is and union with Christ is at the very heart of the Christian life. It's the heart of the gospel. Right, that in Christ we die. We die to self. We die to sin. Paul says here we die to the world. And we come alive in His resurrection. Christ in us and us in Christ so intimately that it can be said that what's true of Christ is true of us. As the Father loves the Son, so He loves us. As the Son is righteous, we're righteous. As the Son had the Spirit, we had the Spirit. As the Son rose to new life, never again to die, so do we. Union with Jesus in His dying and in His living. We share in the cross of Christ and His death. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. It is a strange thing to boast in the cross. Right? It, uh, we have 2,000 years of church history behind us. Right? We have 2,000 years of living in uh, the Western world, where the cross is a religious symbol primarily. Uh, but in the ancient world, the cross was a symbol of Rome's imperial power. It was a symbol of their capacity and power to kill anyone who rebelled against them. It was uh, the most shameful way to die that human beings had ever conceived of. 
The Roman Empire was the strongest and most fierce empire the world had ever seen. What they did in their uh, imperial life was they borrowed best practices from the other empires of the world. And one trick that they picked up from the Persians was to take their enemies, to nail them to a tree, and to leave them there. So that everyone else who came by would look and say, look, that's what happens when you mess with the Persians. And the Romans said, you know what, that's a good idea. If we desire to conquer the known world, it's going to be important for us to not only conquer a place, but then to leave all the subsequent generations of that place in fear of us. And so what we'll do is we will, we will nail our enemies to trees, and then we will leave them there for the world to watch them die, for the world to watch them devoured by the birds that came around for them. It was a means of death that was viewed as too awful for any Roman citizen to ever undergo. It was used uh, exclusively for rebellious slaves. It was used for uh, foreign uh, people within their bounds who rebelled against them. And it was a symbol not only of physical pain, but of emotional shame and degradation. Right? Why were they crucified naked? Right? Not because it made the physical pain worse, uh, but because it made the exposure to shame uh, that much more horrific. And so when Paul says, I boast in the cross, that is crazy talk to his initial readers. That is saying, I boast in the very symbol that means our defeat. It's the symbol that crushed uh, national Israel under its foot. It's the, the, uh, the symbol that crushed Jesus' messianic claims in the eyes of the world. It was a symbol both of uh, Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says it's a symbol of humanity at its best and, its, and at its worst. At its best because you look at the Roman Empire, it is the most efficient, wealthy, powerful force the world had ever seen. It is the best that this world has to offer when it sets its mind at power and wealth and domination. And it's humanity at its worst because it shows the lengths that we will go to to secure our power and our wealth and our domination. And Paul says, I boast in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, when you look at Jesus on the cross, you not only see Jesus dying there. What you ought to see there is not the judgment of Jesus by the world, but the judgment of the world by Jesus. Right? That, that the cross is the judgment of this world. It is humanity at its best, humanity at its worst. There on a hill outside of Jerusalem, God himself in the flesh taking it onto himself. And Paul says, it's as good as dead. This world marked by vying for power and wealth and prestige, vying for domination, bent in on self, what he's called the flesh. He said, that world is as good as dead. It's been nailed to the cross and it's not coming back. Even though we look at the news, we look all around us, and it seems like that world is very much still alive and very much still running things. Paul says the world has been crucified. Just as in Genesis 6, God looks down on the world. Remember this story, it's right before uh, the flood, right before he destroys the world and commits to start again through faithful Noah and his family. He looks down and sees that the wickedness of this world has grown to a peak. And he has to judge it, so he judges the world and saves one man and his family to start over. 
that the cross is almost the exact opposite. God looks at the world, he judges the world, says this has to go, I have to start over. But instead of wiping the earth flat and wiping out everyone else, he concentrates it on faithful Jesus. Instead of Jesus being safe in an ark through the storm, the storm is concentrated on the Son of God. So that we, through hiding in Him, can become free of God's judgment. So that we can find the world crucified to us. And Paul says, I've been crucified to the world. What looks like one crucifixion is three. The world's being crucified. Jesus, well, Jesus is being crucified. The world is dying. This old world, this old way of life. And I'm dying, right? He's earlier encouraged the Galatians in the last chapter to crucify their flesh, consider their flesh crucified. That to, to be a Christian, to place our faith in Jesus is to say there's a part of me that has to die, right? I cannot uh, get where I want to be and drag everything about myself there with me. That there is a pride, there is a self-centeredness, there is an inward bent to myself that cannot inherit the kingdom. And so there's a part of me that has to go under God's judgment that I have to lay at his feet and that has to be allowed to die. So it means a fellowship, a sharing in the cross of Christ, sharing in this end of the new world, letting what's in us that needs to be killed be killed through repentance, and then to share in his resurrection. Look at what uh, he says here in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So again, this is from a man who's just written six chapters on why you shouldn't be circumcised. It seems like what he's saying is, you know what, listen, get circumcised, don't get circumcised, doesn't matter. And in a way, that's what he's saying. Now, it matters to Paul, but it's like what matters to Paul is that other people were telling the Galatians they had to get circumcised in order to be right with God. That's what got Paul worked up about it, right? It wasn't getting circumcised, not getting circumcised. It was circumcision as a way towards righteousness before God, as a way towards being accepted by God. And so Paul says, look, in the end, get circumcised, don't get circumcised. If you get circumcised, don't think that God's going to uh, look at you with some kind of special favor because you're circumcised. Right? Don't get circumcised, but if you don't get circumcised, don't act like not getting circumcised is going to get you into heaven. Right? That is, that is not uh, the pressing issue here, whether you're circumcised or not. The only one thing that counts is new creation. Right? Whether or not you have a share in the resurrection life of Jesus. Right? Whether you've joined your life with Him. What he's saying is this, this argument about circumcision is an argument about what to do in your flesh. It's about how to arrange a world that's going away. Don't worry so much about that. Place your hope in the new creation, right? There's a part of you that dies when you come to faith. There's a part of you that looks at the cross and says, I need my sin too to be nailed there. But then there's a part of you that comes alive through faith. You become a, sh a sharer in the new creation, right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, that if anyone wants a share of the kingdom, they have to be born again, born of the Spirit, right? That the Spirit has to bring to new life what's dead in us. So there is something in us that has to die. Our commitment to ourself, our preoccupation with our own 
appetites and desires, our own righteousness, our own fear and pride. But there's this new part of you that comes alive by the Spirit, born into new life. And so that's the paradox that's at the heart of having Christ at the center of your life. It means that at all times, there's a part of you that is dying, and there's a part of you that's coming to life. Right? We live in a world where everything is slowly moving towards death. Right? I'm sorry if this is news to you. Um, but everything that's born will die. Every tree that's planted will grow, and then after a while, it'll stop growing. Right? You and I will die. Everything in this world goes from life towards death. And yet, Paul says what counts as new creation. That there's something in you that while the world is going from life to death, there's a part of you that's going from death to life. There's a part of you that is coming to new life in Christ. And it's not a mystery which one is going to win. Right? It's not like, hey, it's a race to see whether you die to sin faster than you come to life in faith. It's, no, no, one part is dead and dying. One part is coming to new life. One part will last forever in a new heavens and a new earth. One part will pass away so that we're no longer plagued by addiction and temptation and self. And we will know only this new life. In this life in the new creation, this life that Paul experiences and that he wants his friends in Galatia to experience, allows him to say this. And as for all who walk by this rule, this rule of dying and coming to life again, peace and mercy, peace with God, peace with one another, mercy, forgiveness from God upon them. And upon the Israel of God, Israel no longer being determined by who's circumcised, who's not circumcised, but who's a part of this new creation people. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul has the power to bless uh, even when he's persecuted. He has the power to extend peace and mercy even when he's being rejected. Because he says, that's not my life. My life's not wrapped up in fear or pride. My life is hidden with God in Christ. He is my life. He should be yours as well. He's our sinner. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this, uh, not only this text, but this time that we've spent in the book of Galatians. Lord, we admit that like those Galatian Christians, we are every bit as likely to find our worth and our value and our salvation in ourselves. Even though, uh, Lord, we believe there's times and there's places where we take matters back into our own hands. And we believe that it's our morality or our smarts or our beliefs or our goodness that saves us. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to make you, your death and your resurrection, more and more the center of our hearts and our visions, the center of our work, the center of our homes, the center of our neighborhoods, the center of our church. Lord Jesus, we want to know that life uh, where all that needs to die in us, all of our sin, uh, no longer plagues us, and where we know only the joy of life in union with you in your resurrected life. Lord, we pray that you would nurture that in us, that we would taste more and more your peace and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.